This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tanner Lecture, second event of the two-event program honoring our series tonight. And we are thrilled to welcome Kate Crawford back to the stage in, in, in to respond to her wonderful her talk yesterday. We have three extremely well-known and highly respected scholars here with us. Before we get started, I want to acknowledge the, the situation that's going on in the world. It is, it is regrettable, it is horrible, and it's, it's, it's almost in, unfathomable. I, I want to, I, I feel, in, I think all of us do a bit hesitant about doing anything else when something like this is going on. But I, I hope that some of the ideas here will have some positive reflection on events in the world and what we're we're all trying to make sense of today. So to jump off, Kate, as most of you know, is a research professor at USC Annenberg and senior principal researcher at Microsoft. She's also the inaugural visiting chair for artificial intelligence and justice at Ecole Normale Supérieure in, in Paris. And she's also leading an international working group on the foundations of machine learning. She's advised policymakers in the UN, the White House, the FTC, and the European Parliament. She's received a number of prizes, and her latest book is Atlas AI, Power, Politics, and the Planetary Costs of Artificial Intelligence, which is really our subject today. Our next, our first panelist, is going to be Marianne Farcad. She's a professor here at Berkeley of Sociology and a director of the Social Science Matrix. She received her PhD from Harvard University in 2000 and is an alumna of the Ecole Normale Supérieure in Paris, and I'm sure can pronounce it better than I am. She's also a comparative sociologist by training, and she's author of the book, Economists and Societies, Discipline and Profession in the United States, Britain, and France, 1890s to the 1990s. She's also published works exploring the national variations in neoliberal traditions, political mores, and valuation cultures. Most recently, her research focus has shifted to the rise, consolidation, and social consequences of new classification regimes powered by digital data and algorithms. And she's got a forthcoming book on this called The Ordinal Society from Harvard University Press. Trevor Paglin, Trevor is a, uh, uh, we're proud that Trevor is a, an alum from Berkeley. He did his undergrad here. He has an MFA from the University of Chicago. And then he, finished, he completed his PhD in geography here at Berkeley. He has gone on to be a renowned artist and geographer. He lives and works in New York City. He has numerous books and one-person exhibitions. He's been featured in many major art shows around the world. He's launched his work into orbit. He's contributed to the Academy Award-winning film Citizen Four, and he's also created a radioactive public sculpture in the exclusion zone of Fukushima, Japan. 
He has also won the Electronic Frontier Foundation Pioneer Award and was named in 2017 a MacArthur Fellow. And the last, the last panelist we have is, is Sonia Kaitel, who is professor of law here at Berkeley. She focuses on the intersection of technology, intellectual property, and civil rights. And she also studies privacy and freedom of speech. Her current projects focus on artificial intelligence and discrimination. And she has been, she is the author of a forthcoming book on art, advertising, and activism, and a previous book, Property Outlaws. She is, 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 is also a, she has written a number of articles on these topics. And as you can see, we are, we are very fortunate to have three incredibly uh, appropriate and, and highly skilled experts on the topics that intersect around Kate's lecture yesterday. So what I'd like to do is open it up for Trevor, or sorry, for Marianne to begin with a few remarks in response to Kate's talk, then Trevor, then Sonia, and then we'll start some dialogue between the panelists, and then soon we'll open it up to include your own questions. So please enter the, your questions at any time. Okay, Marianne, please take the stage. Hello, everyone. Um, it, it's really a, a great and a truly humbling uh, pleasure uh, to comment at this August event that is the Tanner Lecture, and I want to thank the Tanner Lecture Committee for inviting me to do so. As I was listening to Kate yesterday, I kept thinking that this was exactly what a Tanner Lecture should be, a text of breathtaking ambition, beautifully crafted, much like her book, a clear and sustained argument about AI's ground truth problem, richly illustrated with compelling examples, and a forceful and flawless delivery. Ground truth, we understand, refers to the human ambition to capture the truth on the ground, the world as it is. Kate yesterday gave three examples, perspective in the 15th century, photography in the 19th, and military aerial reconnaissance in the 20th. The equivalent today would be things like satellite images, LIDAR visual recognition algorithms. They too, seek to capture a truth about the world out there. And they are pretty good at it. My phone opens when I and only I look at it. My car tells me how to go someplace and rarely misses. My computer writes what I dictate in both French and English, despite my strong accent in the latter. So what is there to care about? Well, for one thing, and we heard that yesterday in the talk, there's a lot of ugliness hidden beneath the lines of computer code that make my life more frictionless today. In short, we have private appropriation, labor exploitation, natural destruction. Nothing very surprising here. That's capitalism for you. It delivers, but it stinks. We've known that since the Industrial Revolution. Another reason to care is that the ground truth of society is elusive, dangerous, and ugly. Elusive. A lot of stuff cannot be ground truthed because there's no ground for it. There's no bijection, uh, as Kate showed, between emotion and facial expression. Dangerous. A lot of stuff should not be ground truth because that ground is private. Ugly. All societies are people sorting machines 
splitting and lumping machines, any search for a social ground truth will find itself mirrored in value judgments, social hierarchies, and social exclusions. Unlike things, though, people do care about the way they are classified, measured, and ranked. And so we've seen a lot of public and expert revulsion at the work that human-facing algorithms do. But here's what I think Kate is telling us. The social ground truth created by scraping and labeling the internet is often uncomfortable, morally objectionable, or downright awful, but it is not necessarily inaccurate. Quite the contrary. The problem often comes from the fact that it is so true in the sense that it may be capturing the world as it is, opinionated, prejudiced, violent, predatory, oppressive. Those are things that cannot be fixed iteratively. So rather than thinking about ground truths as data sets that must be debiased, perhaps we should regard some of them as wholly illegitimate. So we heard yesterday, there's no legitimate visual representation of a concept like that or a function like a CEO. Other data sets maybe ought to be built anew in line with evolving conceptions of justice, identity, and dignity. But I'd like to raise a puzzle. Thinking about ground truth as active political projects rather than as passive objects to be depoliticized around the edges may, in fact, return to an old promise of algorithms. In many instances, including credit, policing, insurance, a lot of algorithms were developed, in fact, on the claim, you know, claiming to bolster fairness in a context where demographic categorizations and open discrimination was the norm. Somehow, we forgot that history. In our rush to analyze what's wrong with today's technologies, we've lost sight of what was terribly wrong with yesterday's. So one very honest, honest question that I'd like to pose to Kate is, have we gained nothing? And if we have gained something, what can we learn from that earlier transition that we can bring to bear on the next one? The other comment, uh, it's more a comment than a question really, is much broader. And here I am expanding well beyond visual classifications, which were the topic of yesterday's lecture. Kate said yesterday that we get the algorithms of our ground truths. She's right. But why do we get these algorithms in the first place? Why do we strive for this kind of ordering? From a sociological point of view, algorithms are allocative mechanisms that distribute people and things across various economic, social, physical, and temporal spaces in the context of scarce resources. To manage this allocative process, we have institutionalized the sorting and slotting of people into categories of deservingness, risk, desirability, and likeness. Perhaps this is where the heart of our problematic politics of algorithms lies in the first place. In fact, it may be in our lack of solidarity with each other, our absence of generosity with the most vulnerable. All of that 
makes the need to differentiate and to allocate so essential to the functioning of our basic social institution. And of course, I'm thinking especially in this country uh, where, you know, we do uh, differentiate so much, right? So I'm thinking about healthcare, various forms of social insurance and so on. Perhaps what we need more than anything is a real socialization of risks and benefits so that people do not face the algorithm alone or do not face the algorithm at all to core. Perhaps if we built more universal and supportive social institutions, we would lessen the need for algorithms altogether. And with it, our obsession with social hierarchy and difference. So in other words, we also get the algorithms because of the society we built. Facing that perhaps should be our political horizon. So I pose that as a, you know, as a provocation for the conversation that is to follow. Wonderful. Thank you, Marianne. Kate, would you like to respond now or hold, hold up until we hear from everyone? I'm happy to hold. Yeah, sure. that would be great. Okay, great. Okay, so Trevor, if you would. So I want to thank the other panelists. Um, Sonia, who is a, a new friend who we, we were able to meet in person for the first time a few months ago, and Marion, hopefully a future friend. And, and of course, Ken, a very old friend and mentor from uh, for, for a long time when, when I was at Berkeley, um, who continues to be incredibly inspiring to me. And uh, most of all, of course, I want to thank you, Kate, um, for the really fantastic and illuminating talk yesterday. And I, I think we can all see why Kate is one of the most important voices out there thinking critically about technical systems and is doing a massive service uh, to the field by excavating some of these blind spots, hidden assumptions, unimagined forms of ideology that are often built into what are uh, sometimes conceived of as simply mathematical or apolitical machines. And uh, I'm going to tell a bunch of stories, basically, but I'll start with a story um, about five years ago, a big tech company, Facebook, um, called me up and they asked me to come and talk to their art and AI group. And I, I thought, why not? Sure, I'll go see what those guys are up to. And when I'm there and we're all sitting around and they started um, showing me a demo of a system they were working on that that was going to generate what they called art. And they explained to me that art was partly built on tradition and partly built on creativity. And they thought, well, how do we simulate that? So what they had done was they built data sets of artworks and organized them into categories like cubism, abstract expressionism, pop art. And that they explained to me that was the tradition part. And then they were introducing randomness into the generator that they were building. And they said, well, randomness, that's, well, that's a proxy for creativity here. Um, needless to say, my jaw <laughs> was on the floor, <laughs> you know, but um, not only for the inanity of the assumptions that were built into this project, but by the hubris in the room, quite honestly, and I think I was led out the door when I just kind of said, you guys know that cubism isn't real, right? There's no such thing as cubism. <laughs> and 
So that leads to this kind of a little bit of a deeper dive that I want to that I want to go into about a small comment that Kate made in her talk when she showed a slide yesterday of the Apple category in, in ImageNet. And Kate said, classifying apples not be particularly controversial. She had a caveat saying that this was actually much more complicated. And I know that Kate does not think that classifying apples is uncomplicated because we have been talking about it nonstop for several years. <laughs> and so I want to just talk a little bit about, about them apples. How about them apples? So if we include something like apples in a training set for computer vision, we make a few assumptions. One, we make the assumption that pictures point to the things that they represent. We make another assumption that the things that they point to actually exist. And in the past, I've referred to this set of assumptions in computer vision as a kind of machine realism. And I think that both of these assumptions are in fact incorrect. On the question of meaning, pictures of apples uh, historically and currently rarely concept, you know, rarely signify the concept of or reality of apples. Historically, they've signified things like health, abundance, sin, death, knowledge, love, and so on and so on. Often, as you can see, contradictory things. And those meanings are constantly changing. Now, there's this other assumption about essence, um, that there is an apple. And of course, this is also an incorrect assumption. Um, if you, when I'm, on the few occasions that I've been able to spend some time with biologists, I always like to ask the question of, of do species exist? And then they, you, know, you get into this big conversation. They hem and they haw and say, well, kind of, not really. You know, it's complicated is the answer. And that's right. Um, because, of course, it is complicated. We know this from Darwin, of course, which is that the living world is one of variation and it's one of change, that there's no ideal types of animals or plants or any life forms. Everything is a mutant. Everything is changing all the time. And so this brings us to the question of whether, given these conditions, is anything really imageable in a quantitative context? And when I started thinking about this question, I started thinking about, you know, I also have training as a geographer, and I was thinking a lot about what was called the quantitative revolution in geography. And this was a kind of crisis that happened in the 1950s and 60s. And before that, geographers would go out and you would describe a place and it was considered a, a, a practice of description. And they all got really, you know, self-hating in the 50s and 60s. They felt like they're not sciencey enough. And so they started using all kinds of numbers and equations and statistics, and they wanted like science up the field. And my PhD advisor at Berkeley was a, a really wonderful, fantastic man named Alan Pred. And he had he'd begun his career doing this quantified geography stuff. And he'd even won geography's version of the Nobel Prize for quantitative work on cities. But later in his life, he renounced all of his earlier work. He said it was all bullshit. And he started writing these weird books that were montages of stories and images that were really inspired by Walter Benjamin's accounts of uh, Paris. There was a funny moment in my PhD where I had finished my coursework. I had, was preparing for my exams. 
And I realized I had done zero training in methodology at all. And I went into his office in a panic and I was like, dude, Alan, I've been taking how many classes here for how many years? I realized there's this huge hole in my training. We have not done any methodology. And he basically looked at me as like, fantastic. You know, my plan is coming together. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, you know, he's like, I know all about methodologies. There's all these cookie cutter methodologies. You can use them. And they're mostly recipes for bullshit because he said, what methodologies have, he said, you, they have to arise from the materials that you're looking at. He's like, look at your things, look at it again, look at it over and over and over. And it will gradually just tell you how it wants to be studied for lack of a better word. And that is kind of always the way that, that, that I've worked, I guess. And this, obviously this method is very much inspired the, I guess, lack of a better word, methodology that me and Kate have been trying to develop over several years of excavating these kinds of training data. And this brings us back to this question of apples, this question of training data and computer vision in particular. And, you know, I've really spent years racking my brain about these apples and have tried to imagine in what situations this kind of computer vision classification could be useful. And the best answer that I've really been able to come up with is quality assurance in industrial agriculture, right? So you try, you try and build systems that automate the selection of apples according to whatever criteria that you want them to have. This is something you would be, do at a huge industrial scale. This is not something that they would do at the farmer's market, for example. And so the point that I'm getting at is that maybe the economic and industrial contexts determine what is sensible within the system. And this leads us to a pretty remarkable conclusion, or, or at least a, an idea, which is that there's a kind of a political economy of meaning-making going on here, that the question of what a picture means is a function of the industrial context that it's in. Now, there are some precedents for this idea, um, most notably the work of the former Berkeley art historian, Michael Baxendahl, who came to a similar conclusion in a survey of Italian Renaissance painting. I wanna give a shout out to uh, Leonardo Impet for making this connection to Baxendahl's um, philosophy of art. So I think this provides us with an opportunity to add another category to Kate's taxonomies of the unstable ground truths on which much machine learning is built. We can add a category like the economic ground, where we think about the political, economic, and industrial conditions that encourage certain forms of data and meaning-making and strongly discourage others. And I want to conclude by seconding Kate's uh, uh, conclusion in her talk yesterday, where she called for bringing new kinds of imagination to the field. She called for us to step back as far as we can, question as many of our assumptions as we can, and think big and to think truly big about what we want the world to look like, because the tools that we create will, of course, make that world. And I think that there is another side to that call for imagination as well, which is something about a call for humility, a kind of a, a humility in the, in the culture of machine learning, a sense that maybe machine learning isn't the solution to every problem, and that maybe it's not even a solution to very many problems at all, and that maybe we shouldn't be too confident in our own abilities to make those judgments. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you very much. And... <clears throat>
I can't resist the, your your citing of the apple as a as a as a um, as an exemplar. <clears throat> of course, there's the the I, the the apple on my ta on my table right here that we're all taking a bite out of every day, and its implications right as as a as an icon of of Western computing and technology, and still lasts pretty well in regard to its original choice with regard to Adam and Eve. Okay. Um, Sonia, please, um, we welcome your, your input on this. Great. Uh, thanks so much. Um, it's just such a pleasure to be here. And um, I'm just so happy to be uh, sharing the space with um, so many people whose work I admire so much. Um, I, I guess I, I want to return to something that uh, Jennifer Chase said yesterday uh, in response to your talk, which I just thought was really uh, insightful, which is your talk, which was so wonderful and brilliant and insightful, just was really literally like the best argument for why uh, sort of institutions of higher education need to think about how to integrate notions of society, questions of social construction with ideas of data science. And um and the way that you have done that in terms of your own book and the mapping of that is just, it's its just exemplary. It's remarkable. Um, and it gives us all a bunch of different maps, right? Uh, in terms of thinking about how to use those tools and thinking about AI. Um, I think that the, the value um, to, to me of your talk was just uh, in the range, right? Like, so I've been thinking about social construction for a long time, but the way that you applied it to, to data, data science, the way that you applied it to questions of materiality was just so in, incredibly powerful. Um, but I found myself kind of coming back to a place that uh, is, is familiar to me. And, and the place that I come to, which is familiar, uh, is kind of what do we, what do, we do knowing uh, the kinds of things that we now know about the notion of ground truth. What do we do after that excavation? Um, and so I really was struck. I definitely, you know, I'm, I'm sure that you have many uh, responses to, to both Marion and Trevor, but I would love to hear about um, a little bit more about the, the, the point that you ended on, which is the notion of uh, material ethics um, and the idea that we can use uh, you know, larger conversations about ethics and responsibility and social responsibility and integrate them um, into questioning the assumptions of AI, as Trevor points out. Um, and I guess the question that I sort of am left with, right, is uh, I, I want to be an optimist. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm like a diehard optimist. Um, I think the things that we see in the world um, and the way in which, you know, so many people uh, and so many scholars have kind of elucidated for us how social construction has operated. And now your talk presents us with the idea of social construction operating on a grand, massive industrial infrastructural level um, in terms of the products that go from the social, that are developed from the social construction of AI. And so I guess I just really wanted to open up a conversation first about the idea of ethics and how we can think about integrating the idea of ethics into, into AI, if it's even possible, or whether the solution is this, um, you know, Marianne had talked about, you know, do we abandon it entirely? What do we do? Um, and the other thing that I just really am thinking about is um, particularly because Trevor, you know, I'm a huge fan of your work and I've followed your work for years. I think that there really is a very powerful role for um, you know the title of this of, of this panel, art and activism here, in terms of both obfuscating some of the issues that AI creates 
um, but also educating the public in ways that I think are really important um, to reach the public. Those of us that are in versed in law, policy, sociology, we've been thinking about social construction for a long time. But I think that when you're the work that you've done um, with Trevor, when you see it on, on such a direct level, it really does kind of raise the possibility of kind of thinking about different ways to educate the public more deeply and more visually um, about the risks and the dangers of, of AI. Excellent. Can okay. I, can I add a little bit since Sonia did mention what I had said yesterday? Uh, I really, um, you know, we are thinking about educating tens of thousands of students at Berkeley, but many more than that uh, across the world as we bring them these tools, as we teach them these tools of data science and AI. And we've thought here very deliberately about how we weave ethical considerations into this, uh, how, you know, uh, there are four components to our data science major, computing, statistics, human context, and ethics, and a disciplinary emphasis. And I believe that as we train people at every point, we should be uh, almost as if uh, teaching them how to ethically hack what they are building, right? What are the vulnerabilities that what we are creating leaves? How might people exploit those vulnerabilities? When we create power, we know that people will try to usurp that power. And so in all that I have heard yesterday and today about the non-absolutism of ground truth, about the way in which we approach these societal issues. What are the legal frameworks? What are the normative frameworks, the moral frameworks, the artistic frameworks around this? I would love to hear from you, Kate. And you and I have you know, worked together for a dozen years, worked in each other's orbits for a dozen years, how you might choose to educate students who are entering college, who are embarking on learning some of this, how to teach them how to be better members of a civil society that is permeated with AI. Great. Thank you, Jennifer. So actually, that's a perfect setup, if you would. Kate, maybe we, you can take that question first and take these in reverse order, because that's very much connected with Sonia's question. So, Kate. Thank you so much, Ken. I, I want to begin by just expressing enormous gratitude to the panelists today. One of the extraordinary gifts of presenting a Tanner lecture is that you also get to suggest the people who have inspired you and whose work um, has been such an influence. So this this really is the group of people who um, I owe enormous debt to in terms of the work that you've done and what you've given the world. Uh, you're all inspirations to me, uh, intellectually, artistically, and 
creatively. Uh, it's it's an extraordinary group. So I, I want to start there. And I also want to just riff gently on uh, Trevor's provocation to the machine learning world to ground itself in humility. I think this is also an experience for me of, of being deeply humbled because of the just extraordinary things that you've said and contributions and critiques and expansions of these ideas, uh, which are just so generative. So let, let's start there. Um, my tendency is, because of the way the questions have been ordered, um, is actually to invert, if I may, can um, to start with Marion and actually end with Jennifer's questions, because I feel like in some ways they, they actually follow from each other and complicate each other, because there are no easy answers here, and, and particularly ending on pedagogy, I think, will, will help us see why these complications also are important to how we think about educating in this space. So I want to begin with Marion's just spectacular provocation around this idea of, you know, have we gained nothing from this sort of expansion of algorithmic logics and conveniences into our lives and our institutions and our publics? And I think the first response I would have to say there is, who is we? You know, who is the we who gains? Because I think that immediately reveals that so many of these systems have given so much, um, depending on your positionality, your access to privilege, and your um, access to other forms of material benefits. And, and this is where your work, Marion, has been so extraordinarily important in terms of thinking about the ways in which scoring systems are feeding into particular types of market logics that have radically expanded just in the last hundred years. And for me, I think when I when I think about the way in which your work has pointed to this shifting away of socialized forms of risk. So we can think about insurance and the way that we've moved away from this idea of insurance insuring groups of people to a hyper-individualized risk profile um, that, as you say in your work, is it's all about you, um, has these two effects, this sort of twin impacts. One is that we lose that solidarity in, in the face of the algorithm because people have been so, so closely monitored that, you know, how much you exercise and what you eat and what you buy is suddenly reflected back in a social score about you. But it has this other terrifying impact, which is that it has taken away from that sense of that there are group and structural and historical forms of privilege and risk that are not being modulated by those forms of algorithmic scoring. And I think this is also where when we start to look at this question of of, uh, of risk that we need to sort of flip the, the lens on how we think about AI as a form of capital. And, and I'm thinking here also of, of your work with Kieran Healy. Um, in thinking about what you called, I think very provocatively, not just uber capital, but Eigen capital, that we have these ways in which all of these forms of data, not just, you know, what we would understand is within the credit system, but everything from who's in our social network to the things that we say online to our Instagram photos have become part of this sort of credit modulating system that is constantly shifting and extremely difficult to track. So here, you know, for me, the, my reverse provocation to you, Marion, would be to think about the ways in which AI operates as capital in, in almost two ways. I mean, I think there's an obvious way in which, yes, it, it functions as a, a type of, uh, of capital in the sense that it is a process of circulation um, about extracting value. But in this other sense that it's also an expansionist mechanism of performing kind of 
what Marx called primitive accumulation or David Harvey would call accumulation by dispossession, you know, this, this expansion of algorithms into spaces that capital did not previously have access to, this sort of capture of the commons. And I think there we have to ask, you know, we have actually lost rather than gained because the, the last things that were seen as as public commons um, have have everything from how we sleep to you know how we move in public space have indeed become part of that algorithmic modulation. Trevor, to turn to you. Um, extraordinary too, um, in, in the sense that I know we, we keep talking about this question around why is it then we look at sort of classification of the world versus classification of humans um, that it's so it's so commonly assumed to be fine that the minute we look at social classification of course these harms are very evident to us but what is it when we classify an apple and and, and how are those sorts of decisions being made and i think I wanted to open up this question of imageability and particularly this idea of imageability as a quantitative uh, strategy. Um, as you and I both know, um, after our work on ImageNet, uh, the ImageNet creators have released a new version of ImageNet, um, which includes a new uh, imageability score um, in response to critiques that there were so many ideas embedded in this data set that were inherently not visual from light to data uh, to, you know, moral judgments that we've discussed. Um, and, and opening up that category of imageability um, is, is so extraordinary because when you when you look at how things have been ranked, it, it is, again, opening up this just world of illogic so that the idea of a grandmother is given an imageability score of five. Um, what is it to be able to look at someone and know that their children have had children? Again, this is not an imageable concept. So I think, again, this brings us back um, to the idea of a, of a political economy of meaning making. And I think you're absolutely right to say that this is where this work is, is pushing towards, because that is precisely why things are being given an imageability score. It is because there are particular forms of profit to be gained, and it also feeds into particular types of often very militarized logics. So to answer your question of when is an apple um, more than just an apple, I would also say, you know, every time you have a photograph of yourself with an apple in Instagram that's being scraped and understood as a score of your health, that your insurance should actually recognize your good practices as opposed to if you have a photo holding a donut. So indeed, the apple itself has become an algorithmic modifier. And Sonia, such a pleasure. Um, your work, again, um, has been just so important in thinking about these questions. And I want to particularly note your recent work on the gender panopticon um, in terms of the way in which these systems are creating extraordinarily sort of heteronormative and exclusionary logics that particularly for trans and non-binary people are constantly being sort of written out and made invisible. Um, and, you know, you, you've probably asked, you know, one of the, the toughest questions, you know, which is, what do we do? Um, and, and how might we answer that call with a, a material ethics? I want to be honest with you. I, I've had enormous difficulty with the way in which the term ethics has been in some ways adopted, in some ways defanged, and in other ways used as a form of ethics washing, um, particularly in, in tech writ large, but you could, you could sort of look to many industries that I think have used and abused this term. And interestingly, you know, I've, I've never applied it to myself, um, but it, it is at this point now where I do think we have to talk about materiality in different ways and ground it in an ethic. But I, you will notice 
insist that I'm using the concept of a material ethics of AI, not AI ethics. I think there's a very important distinction to be made there. We are talking about an ethics of this broader world where we have to start thinking about these core questions around justice and sustainability. So I think in that sense, there's a hard conversation to be had about where that word serves and does not serve the broader political projects of justice in relation to these systems. And Jennifer, I, I, I wish I had an easy answer for you as to um, what the pedagogical responses should be to how we might want to change the way that computer science and specifically machine learning is being taught today. Only I would say that I think it does need to be substantially changed. Now, you have spoken powerfully to forms of interdisciplinarity. And uh, the question that that will always provoke, and it's a good question, is which disciplines get to sit at that table and who gets to have a say in how those systems will be built. So it is very common, and I've unfortunately been in many of the rooms where you know I've heard a, a sense of interdisciplinarity as being described as having a computer scientist and a statistician and maybe somebody who's a bioethicist. This is absolutely not enough. And it is already such an attenuation of even the early histories of AI in the 1960s, where we saw anthropologists, we saw sociologists, we saw art historians um, coming to the table and actually being part of those conversations. So again, I would say that sometimes interdisciplinarity can sound like too easy a solution, because I think it's, it's often a very narrow pool on, on whose expertise counts. I think it also means that we have to ask the question of how do we think about accountability to the communities on whom these systems are frequently foisted on from above? And that is one of the hardest questions because it's not easy, um, but it is actually, I think, part of the question that we have to face, that the sort of exclusion of communities from the process of designing systems um, has brought about so many harms, uh, it, particularly in the last few years, but I think you can look at decades of harms here as well. So how, you know, if there's a core question that you want to ask people in terms of teaching these systems, I would say question them. The first thing that we can do is to question them far more radically than we have and to think about their impacts in a far more complex and long-term way. But thank you so much for these provocations, and I look forward to our discussion. Terrific. Thank you, Kate. Excellent. Okay, so let me turn back to the panelists to respond and turn to Kate, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So, Marion, you first. Well, thank you, Kate, and also thank you for... Um, the many references. I didn't expect to hear Eigen Capital in, the, <laughs> in this conversation. Um, I, you know, so I'd like to go back to, to two really important points that, that you made. One is who is the we? Um, a lot of these systems, you know, were developed and continue to be developed. Actually, we have this incredibly, uh, you know, uh, flourishing and incredibly powerful language of inclusion, right? Digital inclusion, financial inclusion through digitization and so on. So we have that in the developing world, we have this towards the poorest, most vulnerable segment of the population. And that's been a huge argument for, um, for I'm, I'm thinking particularly, of course, of the, you know, uh, credits uh, in, in general. But I think it is really important to try to understand that. And, and, um, if you think about what's happened to finance, you know, you've had financial inclusion. You know, the fact is, it has happened, right? 
Uh, now, the question of whether it is desirable or not is, is, is another question which I think we should treat separately. But we've had, you know, that expansion. It used to be that, you know, women couldn't get a loan without their husband signing for it. It used to be that black people couldn't borrow, you know, um, because of the neighborhoods that they lived in and so on. So, you know, it, it, some of this has persisted, but, you know, there's been a transformation. And I think it's important to talk about that transformation. Now, what we get instead is, you know, we get a sort of recomposition, you know, reorganization, right? Where new kinds of inequalities are emerging and the inequalities are emerging. I mean, of course, the old ones are still there, as you know, you very eloquently um, uh, mentioned, but we also have, sort of new forms of stratification that are emerging that are sort of native to the digital economy. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's one of the, you know, one of the things that my work with Kieran is trying to, to show is that, you know, maybe it matters more to your life today, whether, you know, if you have a credit score below, I don't know, 600 or something, maybe that's, you know, something that really organizes a lot of the access that you get to basic services and, you know, housing and insurance and maybe um, uh, a job and so on. So that's one thing that I think is important. The other thing that I think is you said, and that's very important, and it goes back to a point that, that Trevor was making, which is that digitization and the development of machine learning um, is very much a process that is associated with financialization. Right. So it's really about the financialization of everything and the collateralization of everything for, you know, financial uh, purposes. And we see that continuing today with like things that are happening, you know, the NFTs and the, you know, the, uh, even, you know, collateralizing everything about your person. Right. So, you know, the process is still ongoing. Right. And so, you know, the political economy of these systems is very much about the rise of finance. And so that's sort of the broader context in which uh, these, you know, these things are happening. Great, Trevor. Cool, well, I mean, I, I just have random thoughts, I guess, at this point as a, as a response. Um, you know, I, with with this question of justice, you know, so many times as I'm seeing these um, arguments about the attempts to try to create fairness in algorithms or whatever, I'm I'm kind of constantly this conversation has happened before, and it's happened in prison sentencing, right? So in the you know back in the day in the '60s and before that, you you were sentenced to a crime, you get an indeterminate sentence, like three to seven years or something like that. And then you, you have to go for a judge and they decide whether how long you would serve, right? And what ended up happening was white people would do three years and black people would do seven years, right? So it, and it, had, it had this very racist outcome. And the response to that was well-meaning liberal people were like, well, we should have truth in sentencing, right? You should get a sentence and that should be it. And that should, that'll fix the whole problem. Well, guess what? That didn't fix the problem. <laughs> you know that, um, you know, it created a situation where everybody got seven year sentences. You had a massive explosion in the prisons and it didn't become any less racist 
at all. Kind of quite the opposite. It also created the opportunity for uh, uh, sentence enhancements and for uh, it created a situation whereby the lever that you could pull was the number of that sentence. And so it would continually go up and up and up and up now. Um, so I'm just using that as a kind of a historical reminder that there are deeper problems and how to address those deeper problems is hard. It's really, really hard. <laughs> you know? And um, and so in terms of thinking about the interdisciplinary conversation in machine learning, I think there, there's something to learn from that in terms of not only thinking about who is in the room, but I guess just thinking like in a deep way about historical context and like contexts that are perhaps even deeper than the, than the, than the framework in which you're posing the question are, right? Um, about the ethics and AI thing, it's, it's really funny. I hadn't looked at the um, race papers recently, but in preparation for your talk, I went back and just said, are people still doing this? And, and, the, the, and the answer is yes. With the caveat that and this is it just started blowing my mind that in the introduction of these papers, now it's like, oh, and we have to recognize race as a historical construct and it's coming out of colonialism. So let's get busy building race classifiers. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Like, so, you know, how has this, you, this sense or, or awareness that maybe there should be ethics and AI get stated, but then the, the same shit is done on the back end, you know? Um, so it's just, it's just that. And I guess... I kind of had a question for you, Ken. I mean, you, you work in labs and I don't, obviously I'm some artist. I just look at me like, oh, that's weird. You know, um, but I guess the question that I have is, is basic research possible, you know, given all of the things that we're talking about here, you know, I, and I, I mean, that is a very serious question and kind of what is that in, in your mind and in your pedagogy, what is that distinction between what is, I guess, what it, what is what it would be akin to basic research in physics versus you know sociological tinkering or what have you? You know. Well, thanks, Trevor. I, I actually I, I appreciate that because I've been sort of wanting to jump in a little bit. And and what I, what I want to note is you know I, I I was struck by the the term eigencapital, and it's it's very interesting because that is a it references this idea of eigenvectors and principal component analysis. And this was really the root of, of a very early classification and that, that uh, you know, very much in line with what Marianne said about um, algorithms allocate. And it was with the, 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 the terrible history of the IQ. Right? And the idea of the IQ was to, was to use dimensionality reduction to find these dimensions and to be able to score people along those with the implicit assumption that there was one sort of metric of intelligence. There was, there was, this, there was this singular um, idea that everyone could be ranked on a scale, a linear scale of intelligence. And so that was really, um, you, you know, a huge distortion it was used by the military, obviously, to, to rank recruits and such. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting because we, we did a project a few years ago where we tried to, to use principal component analysis to analyze patterns of ratings of jokes. And we had a, a number of jokes and we had people rating them. And so we applied principal component analysis to project it down onto a plane. And I was hoping that we would find certain clusters, in other words, senses of humor 
And in that same way, what was very frustrating and ultimately more, more interesting, revealing, was that the, everybody was all over the place. It looked like a huge nighttime sky of constellation. There weren't really many clusters. And so humor was all, was just hugely spread out. And so, and, and I think this is very interesting in regard to, you know, Kate, your comment about Ekman. And, you know, he, I, I do think that to, in terms of fairness, I do think there's a little more to his analysis. Uh, he, 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 I think the idea of the six emotions are sort of a, you know, acknowledged as a kind of very, very simplified, to trying to take on some principal components of these dimensions, but with, with recognition that that is by no means to mean exhaustive or exclusive. But I think that what we're, this idea of history and understanding where these tools come from is, is extremely important and very much absent in most of the training for, for scientists and engineers. And I see Jennifer nodding here. And so what I keep coming back to is the, 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 this huge gulf that continues to exist between the two cultures. And we have it here in, in, in you know, as far advanced as I feel Berkeley is in so many ways, it, that, that, that gulf it continues to persist. And so you have huge misunderstandings. And last week, for example, I was in a discussion and, and there was, it was a, a number of colleagues talking about critical race theory. And they brought up Popper in order to say, you know, this is not a theory. This is, you know, there's no refutability. Yes. And it was really interesting because they didn't have any real sense of critical theory, what it meant and how it, there, there can be sociological and philosophical theory. And they only, in their mind, the only theory was mathematical theory. So that persists and it's still very alive and, and, and thriving. And so I think the key is that there's, there's a very strong cultural gap that, that, that's going on. And that's what, what I think is so interesting about what you and Kate and, and, and Marion and, and Sonia are doing, which is you're, you're, you're excavating by coming into this, this other world and really diving into it deeply. You're revealing things that the, the engineers are not realizing themselves and showing them. Now, they're not gonna, they don't like what they see when you see, when you see this, right? And you've seen the reactions. The point is though that, you know, I think that there's something very deep going on here and it's very, it's, it's, it's age old in terms of looking back in history. So to your point about how do we, you know, what is the ethics? How do we, how, how, what is normative? How can we sort of learn from this and, and move forward in terms of the pedagogy? I, I really, I think one thing is, is, is understanding history to the degree that our students can really hear these stories and know about these, these backgrounds and about the history, for example, I learned a number of things about speech recognition that I never knew before. And that guy from, um, what was he? He was a uh, who? Who was he? That he was part of the uh, secret. Um, oh, he was one of the speech recognition guys, but he was a shady character. He was part of what? Uh, Robert Mercer, perhaps the yes, uh, reclusive Mercer. billionaire. Yes. 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 I never knew that whole story. So that's <laughs> that has to be taught in our data science class. We need to understand that thing. And so, and you're, and you know, and I have to say also as an artist, I, I think you're. What you did with the with the piece on Im, um, ImageNet, what you did was you took it and you made it, you you brought it very vividly back to the moment, the present moment, and, and you you showed it operating on ourselves, because we went to that page and you took a picture of us 
and then it categorized us. And that was so gripping and compelling. So I, you know, I salute you because it was a hugely brilliant idea. And rather than just sort of giving examples in the abstract, you use our own faces to, to exemplify. And that kind of work is exactly what I think is needed is that very vivid, interesting stories that really tell us and show us what, what these, where these, these histories, where these nuances lie. So I would, I, I want, I'm curious how others feel about this, this idea of, of, of using art as a form of, of activism to, to alert and essentially educate the broader public and the scientists and, and, and engineers of this world. Can I jump in here, Ken, for a second? Uh, you know, it's funny because we talk about kind of math and technical, and in fact, I'm a mathematician at heart. And math is beautiful. Math, is, I mean, when I look at a proof, sometimes I can tell who wrote that proof. In the same way, when I walk through a museum, there's a piece of art I haven't seen, but I know whose art that is. And so there is a beauty in mathematics. And when you look at the evolution of computer science, part of it came out of mathematics, part of it came out of engineering, part of it came out of trying to find the perfect, the perfect explanation, the perfect elucidation. And part of it came out of trying to solve a problem. And both are legitimate, okay? But we have to bring them back together now. We have to bring them back together. And I feel with this new college that we are forming, that that is what we are doing. And there is in many, many people I've seen go into computer science in the last couple of decades are people who would have gone into mathematics, who are searching for the beautiful, who are asking questions and searching for answers in the same way that a philosopher would, or honestly, I think in the same way an artist would. It's not everything, but it is the essence of something. And so I believe that there will be a resonance with people in the technical community if we highlight that beauty, if we highlight that attempt to understand, you know, what is just and what is unjust. And it's not simple, of course. There's not one answer to that, okay? But there, there is a part of, the, of this pole between complexifying and simplifying that is beauty, that is what art does. Art trades off between these poles of complexifying and simplifying and bringing the exemplar. And so I do believe that there is space for this. Kate knows we tried to build this at Microsoft Research. I did hire philosophers and anthropologists. And I think it is what we are building here. We are trying to reinitiate this. And I also want to go back to what Kate said about questions. 
Because for the people who are not going into the field, I do not believe that you can be a member of a civil society without having what you need to question all these data-derived conclusions that, and decisions that come your way. And for the people who are going to be the practitioners in this field, they must question all the time, what are they attempting to achieve, who is served, and who is not served by that. So I just, you know, I, I don't believe the gulf is as wide as you think. I think we're bringing things back together. And that's what we have to achieve here. It's just my two cents. <laughs> yeah, one thing that I just want to jump in, uh, just as a, a, as a lawyer, like one of the things that I often struggle with is the fact that so much of the history of our civil rights movement is premised on the social construction of identity categories, right? And so, so much of the stuff that we learn and critical race theory and all of these different things, I think are premised on the notion that there are identities that are constructed and these identities can be deconstructed. And I think where I sort of come out, um, and maybe this is because I am a lawyer and I do believe in like trying to figure out a solution to a problem, which is partly why I think AI is so interesting to me because there really is no solution, is that there's a myriad of different ways that you can approach this, right? So some people uh, want more representation in data sets and other people want us to question the very assumptions that are built into those data sets and still others would want us to abandon those systems. And I think that this is where your point, Kate, about listening to the communities that are being targeted by these systems is really important, right? Because not every community is going to have one answer and it's important for us. This is the project of democracy, right? Um, and it is the project of the kind of work that we are now that is now being done by companies in ways that I think um, you know often overlooks the complexity of these categories. So these conversations have to happen in order for them to be effective. But at the same time, we also have to recognize that you know, as Trevor's point about the sentencing guidelines shows us, you know, there are times where you, you know you really want to question the efficacy of a system and you want to think about you know, its impacts on particular groups, but there's not one answer here. And I think that's kind of one of the nice things about your book is that it provides us with a whole variety of different lenses to think about. Sonia, can I just thank you so much for particularly bringing in that perspective, because I was having flashbacks to being in law school and thinking about, you know, critical race theory, where it was a thing that you learned in law school and it is a it is an actual body of thinking and thought and to see the way that it has been so sort of horrifically turned into this like political uh, football. Um, for all of the worst reasons, reminding us that knowledge is itself this way of trying to create political force and political power. But the thing that I also really would love to, to hear from you, because you've also thought about this in relation to art, is this, I think for me, undercurrent, which we, we haven't quite yet touched on, which is so important to me in the role of art, which is more than its role in aesthetics and beauty, but actually its role in politics. 
and the way in which art can teach us actually something around the politics of refusal, um, something that I write about in Atlas, but it also was a, a topic of a great conference at Berkeley um, just a couple of years ago. And for me, the, the, the core question and the democratic question in the heart of what you've just told us, which is absolutely right, that people will have very different responses to their desire to be visible, their desire to be present in data collection, in systems of, of scoring and, and classification, is where is the ability to say no? We have absolutely written that out of so many of these systems for so long. And I think it's a fiction at this point, this idea that you can, oh, well, I'm, you know, you don't use Facebook or you don't have a phone or this idea that somehow, you know, now I'm out, you're not. You have been absolutely ingested in every way in, in precisely that, that sort of capture of the commons. So for me, and again, this actually brings us back to the question you posed at the beginning, you know, what is the, the role of art here? And I've learned so much from collaborating with artists like Trevor, like Laudan, like Heather, Dewey Hagborg, many others, um, around how do you actually make this a public conversation where people, first of all, can see these systems, can see how they work, can see how they fail, can see how in many ways they're just so basic and, and, and in many cases folding in ideas that I think are genuinely unscientific and genuinely suspect. And then how do we make that public, public conversation lead into a, a genuine politics of, review, of refusal to say that these systems can be used well in some circumscribed domains, but are absolutely inappropriate in others. So for me, that is such an important thing for us to, to center on as well. Good, good, good. So, you know, one thing I want to, I want to say is that I think that it's really helpful to, to, you know, you know sometimes the, the, the conversation becomes a little bit polemical in the sense that I think of the, 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 the engineer, speaking as one uh, with my engineer hat on today that you know we can feel a little bit um, you know that 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 there's a condemn condemn a sense of condemnation and I, I think it's it's also important that you know we we, we also both reflect in, in our own you know in our own disciplines in our own um, thinking about about these things and examine our own assumptions I think that 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 the the humanities, and social sciences are often doing that. And I, I take that as great inspiration, how there is a self-critique and mutual critique going on there. And so I think that from the engineer's perspective, they will also appreciate that kind of self-questioning um, you know, in the context of these, of these discussions, because, you know, they're not, you know, I think sometimes there's sort of this idea they're monstrously, you know, diabolical and, and, and you know, I think as Jennifer said, they, they're, they're oftentimes very, very well-meaning and intentioned and in some sense un, unfamiliar with these deeper issues um, in history. So they're, they're, they're enamored by the beauty of the, of the algorithm, the mathematics, the, you know, what it can do. And, and so, you know, not that they're doing this out of a, out of a, a malevolent intent. But how, so how can we sort of peel that apart and say, here, let's take this rather than sort of condemn it, but let's, you know, change it and, and, and examine it in a way that we can all benefit. Because I think that's a way, I would say, I would offer that's, that's a way to, to reach my colleagues in, in, a, in a good way, in a sense of, of, of more engagement. Um, does that make sense? I think it makes a ton of sense. And, and I, I think you know, in terms of this broader question about so I, I first of all completely agree with you, um, and I I also think 
social scientists and humanities people need to look at technology more and look at engineering more. And I've, there's been plenty of art historians that I've gone to and said, like, you should be looking at computer vision. They're like, oh, I don't do technology. I'm like, it isn't just technology. There's all this other stuff going on in there too. There's images, you know, there's ways of you know, interpretation. This is all stuff that you know how to do, but you, but to, we got to look at what the society is now. So we, we got to look in this broader context. I think that you're, you're, to bring it back to Jennifer's provocation about pedagogy, I think that's really hard. You know, like I don't like I literally have like terminal degrees in art and social science. I can't have that level of expertise on the technology and engineering side as well. So in terms of how do you create a pedagogical platform that that is much more blended and with critical thinking and technology is a really hard question and a really urgent one. Um, but yeah, I would love to hear people's thoughts on that. It, it's, it's, it's something that is very challenging, I think. There's a point that I, um, I was trying to make in my comments, which is, is perhaps a point that people often lose, you know, because they are thinking about sort of, how to change design and how to transform design. But, you know, we should always ask ourselves the question, what are the social and political conditions under which the need for algorithm arise, arises, right? I, and I was thinking, actually, perhaps it was not clear, but uh, um, I was thinking of the book by Virginia Eubanks, which is on, on algorithms used for, you know, to the management of poverty. In a universal healthcare system, you don't need an algorithm to decide who is eligible, right? In a system where you have a lot of public housing, you don't need an algorithm who to decide, you know, who's going to get that apartment, right? So, you know, you have to have that sort of broader conversation about what kind of society do you want to live in, right? And what kind of solidarities do you want to build so that, you know, the need to differentiate between those who are deserving and undeserving doesn't arise. So it doesn't solve all the, you know, there are plenty of other algorithms that will be necessary, but at least that, you know, and I think that's a very important conversation to have, not simply including in places like engineering, right? Because it's about, you know, the, the algorithm is, is, is just coming on top of a system that is fundamentally problematic, right? So that's the point that I think we can make. Yeah. Marion, when you say that, the technical part of me immediately goes to trying to put in something. I'm, I'm sorry, because that's what I try to do. Somebody else might try to capture it visually, and I'm... But it it goes to um, how how would I put the the um, impact of this decision? We do not, I think, in our algorithms take into account the impact of the decision. But that could be, and it's conversations like this that would enable it right? It's talking, it's algorithms, people talking to people like you. We're not going to fundamentally change the way this society allocates or doesn't allocate resources by you and I having a discussion. But we can 
try to quantify in the algorithm what is the impact of these decisions. There are decisions that are huge. There are bail decisions. There are housing decisions. There are loan decisions. There are medical decisions. And there are decisions that are of lesser import. And somehow we use the same set of criteria on all of them in many ways. We don't, I mean, this should be one of the first things that we teach students. We should have a way of looking at this and saying, what are the impacts of these decisions? So these are the kinds of questions that we need to be posing. And by the way, a few of you talked about history and that piece of our data science major is historical context and ethics. So, you know, the historical context is incredibly important in this. So also, what is the impact of it? And how has that played out in the past? You know, how, how have those kinds of decisions played out in the past? So I think it is essential that we be having these conversations. We are, honestly, I know I keep coming back to this and I sound like, but we are building this college to enable these conversations for, to, to be able to bring the relevant uh, researchers together, but also for the students to feel it. Thank you, yes. Jennifer. So, so let me get back to Kate. So, you know, Kate, can you comment on this, this point? Because we're, we're talking about about I, I love Marion's phrase algorithms allocate, and so that algorithms are almost by intent by 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 definition about making difference. And Marion, to my ear, is making a call to unification of of, of smoothing differences. And yet, differences are important. We know that, and and, and that we want individualism and 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 one extreme. We want the freedom to be uh, to be able to to differentiate ourselves from the norm from the from the commons how how do you feel about this 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 thing because in fact one of the things we're just even talking about is the differences between disciplines mm -hmm. and i'm saying i'm making another difference because calling out my you know this difference between scientists and and artists etc so you know are we guilty of these same things and how mm -hmm. how do you feel about this i mean i think you said something incredibly important that is sometimes getting lost, I think, in this in this sort of debate, specifically around AI's wider impacts, which is, you know, how are we going to build coalitions to change the way things are done? And I think you're right that, that there's this tendency to become a kind of engineers versus everybody else, which is incredibly dangerous. And I think not necessary because so many of the, the the points around how do we think about social scoring in terms of how do we think about allocation have also been made by engineers. I'm thinking here of some of the sort of founding figures in AI, people like Joseph Weizenbaum, who were engineers and political thinkers, Ursula Franklin, who was a physicist and wrote some of the most extraordinary work thinking about the wider implications of what we build. So I, and what I'm seeing also, I have to say, in the new generation of students who are, you know, currently undergraduates and early level graduates in engineering and computer science is that they are asking these questions. You know, they, they are they are not feeling as though, you know, they're the ones who are just creating systems and everybody else is is doing the kind of critical political work. There is a sea change coming, and it is is very much built into what is already happening with the students who are joining us on campuses. So that to me is incredibly exciting. But I think Marion is 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 pointing to this other 
the question, right, which is how do we think about why it is that algorithms are brought in to address fundamental broken social systems? And Marion, I, I mean, you, you're speaking to my heart here as somebody who, again, is an immigrant to the United States, but is is you know was raised in a universal healthcare system. To see the differences of what happens without that, and the way that that has so profoundly skewed and broken the American healthcare system, and the way that algorithms are being brought in as though this is going to be a way we can reallocate, it's it's horrifying because again, we're we're building on the shifting sands of data that is telling us these stories of inequality. So you've 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 really me pointed to something that is possibly the most important part of of the project as I see it going forward, which is that we can no longer look to these questions as how do we tinker with an algorithm to make it more fair? How can we carve out some minor privacy protection from a sense of inevitable expansion of all things into sort of machine learning terrains? I think the much deeper question is is this one, this, this idea of how do we want to live and where are our existing social systems falling apart, these infrastructural questions that you've pointed to. Um, and for me, that's part of that is actually decentering technology altogether. That, that so many of these questions are actually not technological questions and should not even be put in that domain and should, in fact, be social questions first. And then and only then should we be thinking about whether or not there's a technical application. That is a wonderful note to conclude on, Kate. I think that is perfectly sums up what we have, what, what this discussion more broadly. And to put it into the context of some some bigger conundrum that we have we have been struggling with as a as a culture that we struggle with today with the the state of the world and and what's happening is that we 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 want to draw differences it's instinctive that 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 quest for for knowledge and is 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 built into us and and so we are going to want to understand to tease things apart and at the same time there they can be incredibly dangerous and there's incredible consequences. So, um, so I just want to say, um, <clears throat> as a final statement here, thank you all for a wonderful panel. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.